and I and the girls were gone uh, this past uh, couple of weeks, and uh, we dropped the girls off at my parents' house in, uh, in Arkansas, and Leslie and I flew to Orlando. We were at the uh, Ligonier Bible Conference together, and I want to thank all of you all who are praying for us for safe travels and uh, for the week. It was a, a, just an awesome week together. I've got a few pictures. Here's one of uh, uh, Leslie and I right there. That's a picture of us in, in Orlando. We got to see some incredible speakers uh, while we were there. Got to hear from uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Got to meet uh, MacArthur and, and uh, have him sign a, a book that's real special to me, a book that, that uh, has greatly shaped the way I view and do ministry. So it was awesome just to get to share that with him and, and thank him for his ministry. Alistair Begg, uh, Stephen Lawson, Al Moeller, just just a, a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, incredible men of God, some of my heroes in the faith. So it was a it was an awesome week. We we're uh, last Sunday. We have a picture of this. Leslie and I were at RC's church in uh, Sanford, Florida, at uh, uh, St. Andrews. But uh, we we had a wonderful time together. But we were on the go a lot. I mean, every it seemed like every minute was uh, scheduled. And uh, because we were on the go, when we got back, it was nice to have about two days just to relax. Do y'all like that? After a vacation that's very busy, or maybe just a long day at work, or a long day out in the yard, or, or mom's a long day at home with the kiddos, isn't it nice every now and again to get some time of R&R, rest and relaxation. Who doesn't like that? Is there anybody in here? No, I wouldn't think so. It's nice, right, at times when we, after a busy day, we just get a few hours of rest and relaxation. I, I love that. That's a great feeling, isn't it? Well, in the text we're going to be looking at this morning in Hebrews... The author is writing to a group of people that we have said are restless and they are drifting from the faith. They are, are looking away from Christ. They are looking beyond Him. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them and he's telling them, especially here in Hebrews chapter 4, that God has this rest that He has provided to you. He has promised to you. He has made available to you through Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews does that to motivate them to keep trusting, keep believing in Jesus, to keep them on the right path and not drift. And believers, as we look at this text this morning, we also are going to see that this rest that is talked about here in Hebrews chapter 4 has been promised to us and has been made available to us through Jesus. And that's good news, isn't it? Because we need it, don't we? We need that rest. We long for that rest. We want it. Whether people acknowledge it or not, we all crave this rest that God brings through Jesus. Unfortunately, there are few who find it, as we learn in Matthew chapter 7. 
It was Augustine who said this. Look at this quote up on the screen. He said this. He said, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. That's exactly right. We're in need of a rest only God can ultimately provide and has provided for us in Jesus. So we're going to talk about this rest today and next week. For the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the fact that though people try and find rest in the things of this world, that kind of rest pales in comparison to the rest that God provides for us through His Son. We're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus provides a greater rest. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 4. If you're not there already, we're continuing our series through Hebrews today entitled, Jesus is Greater. And today and next week, we're going to see how Jesus provides an even greater rest. So Hebrews 4. Now, before jumping in, it's important for you to understand a few things before we do. First, it's important for you to keep in mind that when we talk about the rest that God provides, the word rest used here is a metaphor for salvation. Very, very important that you realize that or you'll miss the main point of this passage of Scripture. Another thing that's important to realize before we look at this text of Scripture and before we look at many others like it in the future, it's important to realize that there is a past, present, and future aspect to our salvation. Now, the fancy 25-cent theological terms for our past, present, and future rest are justification, sanctification, and glorification. You've probably heard those words before if you've hung out with us for, for a little while. The word justification means that that refers to when, when someone is made right with God. When they move from being guilty because of their sin to being not guilty and, in fact, declared righteous in Christ. If you are a true believer, there was a time in the past when you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There was a time in your life when you turned away from your sin and you bowed the knee to King Jesus. You made him the Lord of your life. And when that happens, you move from being guilty to being not guilty and in fact declared righteous in Christ. That's what justification means. Sanctification refers to our, our present salvation. It means that if you're a true believer, you are being saved. The scripture, in fact, uses that very phrase, being saved. It refers to growing in godliness. There is a desire, if you're a true believer, there is a desire for God and fruit from a life lived for Him. Now, I'll be the first to <clears throat> admit to you that at times that process is painfully slow. Amen? But if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, there should be progress. Glorification is the future aspect of our salvation this is yet to happen believers but will for all of us who are trusting in jesus there is coming a day when those 
who have been justified, those who have been made right with God, and those who are being sanctified, those who are growing in godliness, will be glorified, will be made like Christ, will be made perfect. And that's going to happen when Jesus returns. When Christ returns, when we see him as he is, we are going to be like him. And we're going to be given new bodies fit for eternity that will be imperishable and honorable and glorious and powerful and perfect. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15 by the Apostle Paul. The Bible talks about all of these things. God has no problem in his word talking about the fact that we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. All of those phrases are found in the Bible. And you'll read those phrases this week if you read through our scripture reading for the week. You'll also talk about them in your Bible study and discuss them maybe in small groups. God has no problem talking about the fact that salvation is something that has happened, is happening, and will happen. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4 talks about rest as something we have experienced, something we are experiencing, and something we will experience, which makes sense here because rest is a metaphor for salvation. There is a past, present, and future aspect to our salvation. There's a past, present, and future aspect to this rest that the author of Hebrews is writing about. And you're probably wondering why I'm going into all of this. Well, I'll tell you, it's very important for you to understand that so that you'll understand the text we're going to look at this week and next week. If you don't understand the past, present, and future aspect to our salvation, you're going to get lost, and you're going to be confused by this passage today. In the first part of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer is going to go back and forth from talking about our past rest to our present and future rest, which makes this passage a bit challenging. I, I'll be honest with you. If I were just picking passages at random from Hebrews, this would not be on my top ten list, okay? It wouldn't. There, there's a few passages like that in Hebrews. But something we have committed to do here at Fellowship Bible Church is preach the Bible through in its entirety, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what I love about that is it forces me to tackle these difficult passages of Scripture that I would probably normally skip, like this one, okay? So let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 4. In this passage we're going to look at, from this chapter, we see several key principles about God's rest that are going to lead us to this main truth that Jesus provides an even greater rest. So this week, next week, we're going to look at these principles about God's rest. Notice the first principle we see here from this passage. Number one, we should be continually seeking to enter God's rest. We should be continually seeking to enter God's rest. God's rest is something that we should be diligently Seeking, I, I think this right here is one of the main points in this passage of Scripture. I believe the main point the author is making here is that believers should be people who are diligently seeking God's rest. They should be people who are pursuing God's rest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, he says, 
While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Now, the NIV says, be careful. That's a little too light. That's, that's a bit too weak. It's actually the Greek word phobos. It's where we get our word phobia. He's talking about a real fear here. He says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So this chapter here begins with another warning. We have seen these warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. Notice it begins with the word therefore, and I've told you this in the past. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what the therefore is there for? And it's a connecting word here. He's connecting us back to what he's just said. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Hebrews 3, and the author of Hebrews mentions the Israelites. He used them as an example and talked about the fact that many of them died in the wilderness after being delivered from Egyptian bondage, and they died because of their unbelief. That's important to keep in mind. Remember that because he's going to come back to that several times. The author of Hebrews is basically saying here, remember that many of the Israelites did not enter God's rest. They didn't enter into his land of promise. They they perished in the wilderness. And, And we learned two weeks ago, and we'll learn again in the next couple of weeks, that they perished again because of their unbelief. They didn't believe God. They did not have faith. And the author here is using them as an example to warn his audience. He's saying, don't be like these guys. They did not believe, they perished. In light of that, let us continue to believe. Let us not drift, but keep trusting, keep believing, keep clinging, keep persevering. Let us be diligent to enter God's rest. Notice he says, let us fear talking to believers if if you question that you have to question again whether or not the author is a believer because he includes us in the statement he says let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach his rest so so notice he does move from us to you i believe he's indicating here he's already made this application and he's calling them to do the same he says The promise of entering God's rest still stands. God's rest, his salvation, has been made available to us through Jesus. So let us fear that you may not enter it so that you will persevere and reach it. That's what he's saying. Let me say that again. He says, let us fear that we may not enter God's rest so that you will persevere and reach it. Now let's pause here for a minute and admit that this causes some people some problems, this verse of Scripture. Some say, man, that sounds like works there. That sounds like working to keep yourself saved. Some don't like this passage because they believe it causes believers to question and doubt their salvation. And some believe that is neither good nor Healthy. Listen, believers, hear me when I say this. Though we should not be plagued with doubt, having questions, having doubt is not always a bad thing. Do you know that? It can be a good thing. It can be a really, really good thing. Questions lead to answers, and answers can lead to a greater assurance. It can. It's 
It's one of the reasons we're told in Scripture to examine ourselves. Look at your verse for the week. It's taken, it's a misprint. It's actually 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. You can read that if you want. But 2 Corinthians 13, 5 is where this verse is taken from. He says, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now listen, when we're talking about salvation, we should not question God and his promises that he's made to us in Jesus and whether or not he will be faithful on his end. He will. He can be no other way. He keeps the promises, the oaths that he makes. He will keep those things. We're going to talk about that when we get to Hebrews chapter 6. But at times, it's good for us to question our commitment to him, to examine ourselves to see if we are truly trusting in him. The author of Hebrews says, let us fear that we may not enter his rest. Why? So that we will continue to persevere and reach it. Questioning our commitment, examining ourselves to make sure we're in Christ and trusting in him helps us as believers to grow in godliness. It's good to examine. It's good to question at times so that we keep pursuing Jesus. We keep clinging to him. We keep trusting in him. We keep following him. And at times makes us more need, mindful of our need of Christ. It increases our faith in him. Believers, true believers, when we do that, so that we become all the more confident, so that we have an even greater assurance. It should not debilitate us when we question when we doubt, when we examine ourselves, it should not stall you spiritually. It's meant to help you grow. It's good for us to do this. If not, God would not have told us to do this. Fear drives us to keep being diligent, to believe and trust in the Lord. Skip on down to chapter uh, 4, verse 11. Stay in chapter 4, look at verse 11. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says here. He says, let us, once again, therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What sort of disobedience? Again, he's referring back to the unbelieving Jews after they had been delivered from exile. They perished in the wilderness, right? He's referring back to them. They did not strive to enter God's rest. He provided for them in Canaan. Why? They didn't believe God. They didn't trust his promises. The author of Hebrews is telling his Christian audience, you guys work. You guys strive to enter that rest. Don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. You guys keep where they failed in mind and do the opposite. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep pursuing Christ. Put in the work. You have believed. Keep believing. That's what he's saying. It's another warning passage. Folks, when Paul says, work out your salvation in Philippians 2.12, that word work means work. It means work. It's the Greek word katergazomai. It means to put forth every effort to bring it about. Some will say, yeah, but doesn't it also say God is at work in you to will and do? Yes, but that phrase doesn't cancel out the phrase that Paul said when he says work it out. It's both. 
It's both. The word strive used here in verse 11 is the Greek word spudazo, which means doing something with intense effort and motivation. Believers, this is the way you are to be living your Christian life, with intense effort and motivation in light of what God has done for you in Jesus and is doing through you by his spirit as a result of the accomplished work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are to give your life up and over to him and live for him. You're to work out your salvation. You are to strive to enter his rest. Though you are securing Christ, you are to keep trusting, keep believing. You're to contend for the faith, as the guys in our Jude series talked about. You are to be growing in godliness. That is how the Christian life is to be lived. Man, we have lost sight of this. We have lost sight of this completely. Somewhere along the way, people started teaching that Christianity is, the Christian life is like this ticket that you have punched. It's a ticket to ride, not a race to be run. They view it kind of like the subway. You know, I do this one thing, I pray this magical prayer, I walk the aisle, I pass through the waters of baptism, I get my ticket stamped, and now I can just sit back, I don't really have to do anything until I arrive at the destination. I don't find that in here. I don't find that in God's Word. I don't think you will either. There is a past event that takes place. There is a time when we turn from our sin and give our lives up and over to Jesus. There is this time when we move from being an enemy of God to a child of His. But after that, there's work to be done. There is a race to be run. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.11 says we're to make every effort. We are to strive to enter that rest. We are to do everything we can to make sure we're continuing to trust, continuing to follow hard after Jesus so that we do not fall by the same sort of disobedience that the unbelieving Jews fell prey to in the wilderness. Look back up in verse 2. He continues using the Israelites as an example. He says this. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, to the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Notice first, the author of Hebrews says, this is important, the good news, the gospel message of Jesus came to us just as to them. So so let me pause here for a minute. Let me ask you this question. Is he saying here that the Jews in the Old Testament had the same message as the Jewish Christians in the New? Did the Jews in the wilderness have the same message as the audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to in the first century? It's what it sounds like to me. He says, the gospel came to us, the good news, the gospel came to us just as to them. Now, the reason I want to pause here and camp out on this is because there are some today who teach that the Jews in the Old Testament were saved in a different way than we are. But we learn here that the good news, the gospel that that came to us, believers, was the same for them. 
for the Jews in the wilderness. There's only one way to salvation, folks. Only one way. Salvation comes by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. The Jews in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to a Messiah to come, trusting in the future promises of God. They were saved by believing God and trusting in his promises, looking ahead. They were saved by faith. Don't believe me? Just read Romans 4. It's in your scripture reading this week. And actually, Paul's just talking about what was said in Genesis. Abraham was saved before he did anything. He was saved by faith alone. He was declared not guilty but righteous by faith. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 4. The Jews in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to a Messiah to come. We're saved by looking back at a Messiah who has come and trusting in his person and work alone. Same good news, same gospel. One's looking forward, we're looking back at it. So notice here that they had heard the good news. It had come to them They heard the message, but notice we're told the message did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Once again, they didn't believe it. The message didn't benefit them because they did not believe it. They did not have faith in God and his gospel. They did not believe. They rejected him. They turned away from him. They heard the promises of God. They heard the word of God, but they did not believe it. The author of Hebrews is saying here, you guys are in a similar place. This message, this gospel message, this good news that they rejected, the Jews in the wilderness rejected, has come to you. You have heard the message. You have believed it. The Israelites did not. They perished in the wilderness, and they did not enter God's rest. The author of Hebrews is saying, we don't need to treat this message, God's gospel message, as they did. They didn't believe it. They were not united with God's true people, the community of faith. He's saying, you should not be like them. You have responded to this gospel message. Keep responding to it. Keep trusting. Keep believing in it. Be united in faith in Christ with your fellow believers. Stay on the path together. Do not stray. Do not drift. That's what he's saying. Folks, for us to benefit from the person and accomplished work of Jesus, for you to be saved first, And then grow in godliness, you have to have faith. You have to trust alone. You have to put your trust alone in the person and work of Christ alone. And you have to live by faith. We must believe Jesus is who he claimed to be and believe in the work he accomplished. And we must place our faith personally in it, our trust personally in that. We must trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. Are you trusting in the person and work of Christ. Are you trusting in it? For those who are not, God's word is very clear. He promises judgment. We learn that from the non-believing Jews who perished in the wilderness. We learn that from Jesus himself. Jesus said, John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. Where are you? 
when it comes to this today? What, what is your response to God's gospel message? Do you believe it? Are you trusting in it? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If the answer is yes, the author of Hebrews' response is great. Don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep clinging. Don't drift. Don't look away. Don't look beyond. Look upon Jesus. Consider him. Live, as Paul says, by faith. But if the answer is no, you're not trusting in him, I urge you to do so today. Turn the reins of your life up and over to Jesus. Make him your Lord today. Place your faith and trust in him alone, in his person and work alone, Jesus' person and work alone, and be saved. So this is the first key principle we learn here from this passage about God's rest. We learn here that we should be diligent to keep pursuing and seeking God's rest. Here's the second point. Second principle about God's rest is this. We should be confident about having entered God's rest. You didn't read that wrong. We should be confident about having entered God's rest. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Notice there are two tenses used here. You have the word believed, past tense, and inner present tense. When you believe in Jesus, when you trust in him alone for your salvation, you enter God's rest. Notice also, just a side note, but an important one, the way you enter God's rest is by what? By believing. By believing, right? We see this point made over and over again throughout God's word. We're made right. We are forgiven. We are saved by grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. He says, you who have believed, enter that rest. So get this, follow me. We who have believed, believers, true believers, we can be confident that we have entered God's rest. So we see two things here from these first three verses. And these two things, let's be honest, they sort of sound contradictory. They're not, but they sound that way. Notice in verse 1, we're told that we need to keep seeking God's rest. Yet here in verse 3, we learn we who have believed, past tense, enter that rest. Well, which one is it? Is it that we who continue believing and persevere enter that rest? Or have we already entered that rest because we have believed? You with me? Which one is it? What does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that we who persevere enter that rest, and we have entered that rest because we have believed. Here's another way of saying it. The Bible teaches that those who have believed enter God's rest, and those who have believed, they keep believing and they enter God's rest. That's what the Bible teaches. I lost you? I'm going to explain. Hang with me. When you give your life up and over to Jesus, you're forgiven of sin. 
You're made right with God. You're at peace with him. So we have entered God's rest. We have moved from being guilty to not guilty, from being an enemy of God to being a child of his. Immediately when we bow the knee to King Jesus, we're forgiven of sin. We're made right with God. We are at peace with him. So we have entered God's rest in that way through faith alone. But we are also to continue trusting in Christ and to continue believing in him. And if we have truly believed, we will continue to trust and believe and pursue Christ. And those who do that will enter God's rest. Now, how does that work? How can we be in God's rest and still need to enter God's rest? Well, again, I believe we're dealing with the different aspects of our salvation. What has happened in the past and what is happening at present and what's going to happen in the future. Though we've been made right with God past, we are currently growing in godliness present and will one day be with Christ and completely new and live in a glorious physical and spiritual existence with our Lord alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ forever. That is future so there is this already not yet aspect to our salvation which is why the author here provides assurance watch this while also giving motivation so that the believers of his day would persevere in the faith and we need that kind of motivation today don't we the best example I can think of that the, what, of what the author is doing here, bear with me, it's a sports illustration, okay? And it's not perfect. No illustration really is when it's communicating deep, difficult truths of God. But, but bear with me on this. Imagine a coach is with his team, and he is giving his team a pep talk before the championship game. And his team is the team favored to win. I mean, it looks like the odds are, are heavily in their favor. On the one hand, he wants them to avoid being overconfident. He doesn't want them to just stroll in thinking they got the game in the bag no matter what they do. He doesn't want them to underestimate the other team because we know anything can happen in sports. And that's where the illustration falls apart because we're secure in Christ no matter what. Amen? But... On the other hand, he doesn't want them to be overconfident, but on the other hand, he doesn't want them to doubt their own abilities. He wants them to be confident, just not overconfident. He wants them to remain focused, wants them to execute, wants them to play hard. So that coach might say something like this. Look, you're in this game for a reason. You deserve to be here. You're playing for a championship because you are a championship caliber team. And if you execute the way you're supposed to, you can win the game. There's a fine line that coach has to walk. He wants to encourage them to go play. But on the other hand, he wants them to be confident that they can play. Both overconfidence and intimidated teams lose championships, right? Well, in a similar way, I think the author of Hebrews is walking this line here with those in his audience. He wants them to be encouraged and confident about who they are in Jesus, but he also wants to motivate them to live for him to not stray, to keep working, keep striving, and keep pursuing godliness. He wants them to do both. He wants them to be confident and to strive, to know they are secure and to persevere, to examine themselves and to have assurance. This is not the only place we see this. 
Again, Paul in Philippians 2.12, I know I refer to this passage a lot, but it's one of the best that explains our growth in godliness, the process of sanctification. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. So which one is it? Do I work or does God work? Yes. It's both. It's both. God is at work in you so you can be confident that you're a believer. And for that reason, you also need to be diligently working out what he is working in you with fear and trembling. And get this, the two go hand in hand. I want you to catch this now. When you examine yourself and when you strive and work, when it comes to your salvation, it gives you evidence that God is at work in you and that brings assurance. Can I say that again? Let me be more detailed this time. When you examine yourselves and when you strive and work, when it comes to your salvation, as you do that, that desire within you that you have and that work that you're putting in and that fruit that comes as a result gives you evidence that God is working in you, which brings you assurance. You see how that works? I believe that's what God is aiming at with passages like the one in Philippians and in Hebrews 4. He wants his people, true believers, to feel secure, but also to endure. He wants them to be assured of salvation, but he also wants them to work, to strive, to enter his rest. So that's the second principle. Not only are we to continue seeking God's rest, but we are to be confident that we have, in fact, entered God's rest. And we're going to have to stop there this morning. But let me ask you this. Let me end by asking you this. Simple question. Have you entered God's rest? Have you, have you come to the point in your life when you have stopped going at life on your own and you have bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you given your life up and over to him? Scripture is clear that though God created us in his image for his purposes, for his glory, we have rejected his rule and reign. We have chosen to go at life on our own. We have tried to carve out our own way. And you know what scripture calls that? Sin. That's sin. God has created us for himself. He is the one who gives us life and breath and everything. And we have taken that life that God has given us and lived it for our own glory. And we have taken that breath he gives us to breathe and we have used it to benefit ourselves. We have set ourselves against God in our sin. We're at odds with him. And though God is a just God, a God who is set against sin, a God of wrath and judgment, He's also a gracious and merciful and loving God. Instead of condemning all of us to hell forever, he has sent his son to save us. Jesus, God the Son, has become one of us. He has lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, that we failed to live. Not only did he do that, he endured the punishment we deserve because of our sin. Jesus suffered and died for us. He endured God's wrath for us so that we, through faith alone, in Christ alone, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God. It's an amazing work 
that he's accomplished for us. Through faith alone and Christ alone, we can move from being at odds with God, restless in this life, to being at peace with God through Jesus and, and truly being at rest in Christ. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone today for your salvation, I urge you today, bow the knee to King Jesus. Give your life up and over to him. Make Christ your Lord today and be saved. Let's pray.